Welcome to the foot of the rapids. Today, we make a short aside into travel to historic sites. If you are a fan or enthusiast to history, you may often find yourself venturing, almost called by some indistinct voice, to a number of locations that contain significant stories, to walk the ground and absorb whatever embers of magic and energy the place may still contain, the echoes of something once stupendous. Not unlike that eerie and almost depressive sensation that comes when you revisit as an adult the playgrounds you frequented as a small child and behold for yourself the years gone by. If you study or take interest in the War of 1812, you may find yourself beside the Niagara River, whether it be the Canadian or American side. Perhaps no other place has the most densely packed series of actions as does the Niagara Front, though the foot of the rapids here makes a pretty good charge at that same trophy. From the early actions at Queenston Heights and the death of General Brock, to the bloodshed of Chippewa and Lundy's Lane, or the various forts dotting the land and seascapes. Niagara Falls itself, of course, dominates all attractions. Today, drawing many for different reasons and from all walks of our short lives. The mists from that great gushing maw can be felt on the skin and in the lungs from any battlefield in the region. I myself was there but one summer ago on a long and lovely historic tour and late summer adventure. Perhaps the most memorable and warm episode in all days one of many stops at the falls over a number of passing years. And I have seen children from tens of thousands of miles away playing and laughing before its backdrop. And I have seen lonely women crying in its thundering, ceaseless presence. It is a small wonder, perhaps a comfort, to know that in history, the soldiers of 1812 fighting and dying in the great throes of global conflict, something much bigger than themselves, had also viewed it as a necessary tourist stop, a beauty to arrest their troubled thoughts, a place of reflection and meditation. I thought today we would share just a few descriptions of the falls dating from our time period from the soldiers and camp followers who managed to scribble a hasty line as they passed on campaign, grabbing just an impression of the wet and roaring beast that so many of their loved ones at home had only heard of as some far-off wonder. A campfire tale, perhaps, from the great Iroquois nation, the water fortress that stopped all shipping. Travel to historic sites, Niagara Falls. Welcome to the foot of the rapids. In descending Queenston Heights, I expected that we should be precipitated into the boiling waters below. But a kind providence saved us from such a catastrophe. My head whirled as I endeavored to catch a view of nature's wonders in this remarkable locality. We dined at a hotel near the falls of Niagara. These falls, of which I had long heard so much, 
I had a great desire to see. Indeed, ever since we came west, my husband and I have said whenever we spoke of our return, we will see Niagara when we go home. Now our wish could perhaps be gratified, but oh, how strangely different our anticipations. Still, I did not feel disposed to neglect the opportunity, so I preferred a request to the officer in command, telling him that, though a prisoner, I trusted I might be permitted to visit the falls. He very pleasantly answered me in the affirmative, and immediately after dinner, sent a guard to escort us thither. We were astonished and delighted with the stupendous and sublime work of nature, or rather, I should say, of nature's God. But we were only allowed a short time for our stay, as it was necessary to reach our destined stopping place that afternoon. Mrs. Lydia Bacon, August 1812. Quote, though a prisoner, I trusted I might be permitted to visit the falls, unquote. Indeed, Mrs. Bacon, an American, was in the hands of the British when she had her opportunity to fulfill this life goal. And dining at a hotel near Niagara Falls, we can see the gallant ways prisoners were upkept in this age of gentlemanly warfare at least among the officer corps. Mrs. Lydia Bacon was the wife of Josiah Bacon, Lieutenant Quartermaster, the 4th Regiment, U.S. Infantry. In 1811, the 4th Regiment was sent to the Old Northwest, and Lydia chose to go with her husband as a camp follower. And her account of life on the road and women's role in the Army is absolutely invaluable to us and it is a well-regarded primary source. After seeing action in the Indiana Territory at the Battle of Tippecanoe, the troops of the 4th were then sent to reinforce Detroit. It was on this journey through Ohio that they heard that war had been declared, and after being in the throes of the fall of Fort Detroit in August 1812, both Josiah and Lydia were captured by the British taken across Upper Canada on the ship Queen Charlotte as prisoners, and then to what is now Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario. And it was while traveling south to Fort Erie, Lydia recorded her desire to see and visit Niagara Falls in her journal. This place is about a mile above the Great Falls of Niagara. Here I went to see one of the greatest curiosities in the world. I confess I was much disappointed in this great wonder of the world. I felt displeased and disappointed, as it appeared to me to fall so far short of the sublime descriptions I had read of it. This river from Lake Erie to the falls has very low banks. That is, the banks are at all seasons full without ever overflowing. The current about four miles an hour to Slosser, where the rapids begin and increase until the grand pitch at the point of Goat Island, where the water falls perpendicularly over the rocks in two sheets but unites in white foam about halfway down. The country from Erie to Lewiston is level. It is also level at the falls. The water pitches over the rock in the form of a half moon into the abyss below. From the falls to Lewison is called Seven Miles. The banks of the river is very high, and the current very round and rapid, 
so that no boat could possibly cross except just immediately below the falls. The water appears to be dead and deep, without any apparent current for five or more hundred yards below the grand pitch. There is no doubt, but at one period of the world the falls of Niagara River was seven miles below where it is now. This is what is called the mountain at Lewiston, which appear to run directly across the river and forms the heights at Queenston in Canada. The mountain or bench extend for many miles into the state of New York, and on the Canadian side runs to the head of Lake Ontario, and there forms the Burlington Heights. Perhaps I cannot describe it better than to say that the country from Lake Erie to Lewiston, as you travel down the river, is level. You see not mountain until you arrive at the top of Lewiston Heights. Here is a fine view of Lake Ontario, about seven miles below. Here is the place that the Grand Falls was at one point in the world, perhaps ten millions of years before Moses was born. Indeed, the force of this struck me very forcibly, that this world was much older than Moses makes it. Who can tell when the world was made, or whether it was ever made or not? It might have always existed. That is, it might be co-equal with time and space, and may always exist. None can tell or know anything about these things but that intelligence who governs and directs the universe. Lieutenant Colonel George McFeely, Pennsylvania Militia. Lieutenant Colonel George McFeely entered these words in his journal, dating them November 12, 1812 as he marched under orders to Fort Niagara to relieve Colonel William H. Winder. It's a little odd McFeely expressed disappointment in seeing the falls. While his sight of it may have fallen short of previous descriptions he had encountered of it, beholding it for himself was apparently enough to inspire him to these deep thoughts of time and space that make up the end of the entry. He grasps at his and our place in the universe and that of the world, its history and creation. These thoughts don't seem to come every day. Perhaps the falls had a greater impression on the lieutenant colonel than he let on in the opening of his early November journal. Moving on, we turn to another soldier description, and this again meets at first with disappointment, only to turn to awe after further and repeated examination. And this comes from our good friend Dr. William Dunlap, a great favorite on this program, often looked to for insight, and recently featured in his own episode. This coming from High Summer, 1814. My first business on my arrival, on a beautiful summer afternoon, was to visit the Table Rock. My first sight of the falls most woefully disappointed me. It was certainly grander than any fall I'd ever seen, those of the Clyde included. But it was not on the scale of magnificence that I had been led to expect. The opposite shore seemed within a stone's throw, and the height of the fall not very great. I walked to the edge of the rock and seated myself, my legs dangling over, 
and blessed my stars that I was not a man to be thrown into ecstasies and raptures merely because other people had been so. After about a quarter of an hour of contemplation, I resolved to return to my quarters, and previous to rising, I bent forward and looked straight down. Below me were two men fishing, diminished by the distance, and the fishermen that walked upon the beach appeared like mice. These immediately gave me a notion of the height I was perched upon. A sense of sickness and giddiness came over me, and, like Edgar, I prudently resolved, I'll look no more, lest the brain turn and the deficient sight topple down headlong. But I did not make my retreat in a manner quite so dignified as I could have wished, for in coming down the bank I had unslung my sword and was carrying it in the hand. It I pitched backwards over my head, and throwing myself first on the broad of my back, I rolled over half a dozen times, till the thought myself a sufficient distance from the verge of the precipice to get upon my legs, and it will easily be believed I was in no hurry to return to my former position. I then set on foot a series of experiments to ascertain the width of the falls by throwing stones across, but by some extraordinary fatality they seemed to drop from my hand into the enormous cauldron that boiled and smoked below. Next day I came armed with an Indian bow, but the arrows met with no greater success than the stones. They too dropped as if impelled by a child's force. And it was not till after I looked at the falls in every aspect that I convinced myself that they were such a stupendous work of nature as they really are. The fact is, there is nothing at hand to compare them with, and a man must see them often, and from every different point of view, to have a proper conception of the nature of it. Dr. William Dunlop And finally, today, we turn to poetry. It's always nice to be able to include a piece of art, whether it be music or verse, to enrich our perceptions of the past. While we've hit on them previously, of course, it seems all too rare when we seek full understanding. And these lines come ever so slightly beyond our time period, written in 1818 by celebrated American writer John Neal, an early pioneer of American literature. O Cataract, or The Battle of Niagara, came with a short preface in which Neal made the claim that these lines were written while a prisoner, which raised the eyebrows of this researcher, perhaps striking War of 1812 gold. But upon closer examination, we think Neal was using a little artistic license to describe an unfortunate bout of unpleasant employment. Stirring lines, nonetheless. Perhaps it's appropriate Neil visits and writes this poem after the war, like we historic travelers visit today, finding echoes of the days gone by. Neil hears bugles and distant drums, as our imaginations do at such magical places. Neil capturing perhaps what many have wished to say about this great wonder, yet the falls defy their powers of meaningful description. Huzzah!
Niagara, Niagara, I hear thy tumbling waters, I see thee rear thy thundering scepter to the clouded skies. I see it wave, I hear the ocean rise and roll obedient to thy call. I hear the tempest hymning of thy floods in fear, the quaking mountains and the nodding trees, the reeling birds and the careering breeze. The tottering hills, unsteadied in thy roar, Niagara, as thy dark waters pour, one everlasting earthquake rocks thy lofty shore. The cavalcade went by, the day hath gone, and yet the soldier lives, his cheerful tone rises in boisterous song, while slowly calls the monarch spirit of the mighty falls. Soldiers be firm! and mind thy watchfires well. Sleep not tonight, there comes a distant swell like the approaching step of toiling steeds encountering on the hills and far beyond us speeds. Low stooping from his arch, the glorious sun hath left the storm in which his course begun. And now in rolling clouds goes calmly home in heavenly pomp adown the far blue dome. In sweet-toned minstrelsy is heard the cry, all clear and smooth along the echoing sky. Of many a fresh-blown bugle, full and strong, the soldier's instrument, the soldier's song. Niagara, too, is heard. His thunder comes like far-off battle, hosts of rolling drums. And o'er the western heaven, the flaming clouds detach themselves and float like hovering shrouds, loosely unwoven and afar unfurled, a sunset canopy enwraps the world. The vesper hymn grows soft, in parting day wings flit about, the warblings die away, the shores are dizzy and the hills look dim. And the cataract falls deeper, and the landscapes swim. <laughs>